Please be seated. Or actually, no, don't be seated. Let's stand and uh, open up Scripture together. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 4 with me, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. That's Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Please be seated. Paul began the book of Romans with three whole chapters setting the foundation for the gospel. He began in chapter 1 with God's wrath on the unrighteous. He wrote, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge him, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Paul goes on in chapter 2 to point out God's righteous judgment, writing that he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He goes on in chapter 3 to show that all men are guilty before the Lord saying, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned together, and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we skip ahead just a little bit. For, the, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In these chapters, Paul has set up the foundation for salvation. He explains our need for salvation. God's standard is perfect righteousness. But we've all sinned, we've all transgressed, and without salvation, we will all stand before a holy God and be found guilty. And the punishment for that guilt will be paid in blood, in death, in eternal separation from God. And we are all already guilty. Therefore, all are in need of salvation. Casey, for the last few weeks, has been walking us through the first half of chapter 4, in which Paul expounds the doctrine of justification, the act of declaring or making one righteous in the sight of the Lord. Paul is specifically teaching that justification 
comes by faith alone. He does this by pointing to Abraham, the patriarchal father of Judaism. At the beginning of Romans 4, Paul starts with a question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, or our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Justification cannot come from works. Very simple reason for that, because it would no longer be a gift. It would be wages due to us as workers. Paul went on to talk about circumcision. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or, also, or for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then is it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal for the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the, uncir- of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So justification cannot come from the keeping of some religious ceremony. As righteousness was counted to Abraham long before he was circumcised, nearly a decade before he was circumcised, Abraham was justified. So having covered works and circumcision, Paul moves on to the keeping of the law. Over the next two weeks, we're going to dive into the second half of chapter 4. Today, we're going to focus on verses 13 through 17 of this text. We're going to look at the promises given by, by Abraham to God, other way around, by, uh, given to Abraham by God, and the reasons that they cannot come through the law. So let's read our text again, uh, Romans 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be, uh, to be the heirs. Faith is null and void. Uh, let me read that again. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares faith, the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So you'll notice as we transition into the second half of this chapter, Paul no longer starts with a question. For the last few weeks, Paul has started with, with many questions. What, shall then, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Is this blessing only for the circumcised but also, or, or also for the uncircumcised? How was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? If justification does not come by works and cannot come 
through circumcision, then there's no more questions to be asked. Paul leaves us with an emphatic statement that justification cannot come through the law. The promises that God made to Abraham cannot be be predicated on the keeping of the law. So what is the promise that Paul is talking about here? In order to do that, we're going to turn back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it reads, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make, you, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and keep your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, the, in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. If we turn a little bit ahead to chapter 15, we see yet another blessing. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward. Your your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elizer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then the Lord said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. A little bit further in chapter 15, we see a promise of land. On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim and Amorites and Canaanites and Girgashites and the Jebusites. Lastly, in chapter 18, we see another promise. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all those nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. In John MacArthur's commentary, he points out four significant points in these promises. First, God's promise to Abraham involved the land in which his people would live. That promise was not realized till nearly 500 years later when Joshua would lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan. Number two, God's promise would involve a people that would be so numerous they couldn't be counted. Number three, God's promise included a blessing of the entire world through Abraham's descendants. And lastly, God's promise would be fulfilled in the giving of a Savior through Abraham's descendants. We see this last point only in the fullness of Revelation. Paul writes in Galatians 3, Know know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith 
are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Jesus himself spoke of this last point in John chapter 8, saying, when asked, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's through this very last point here that the world would be blessed through the coming of a Messiah. These are the promises that God makes to Abraham, all of which we can clearly see kept in Scripture. But what is it that brought these promises to pass? Was it some conditional thing that Abraham did? Was it his obedience? Was it some act that he performed? Was it his circumcision? Was it his keeping of the law? No. According to Paul, it was the righteousness granted by faith. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir to the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He goes on to say, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. But why? Why is God's promise to Abraham based on faith and not the keeping of the law? Why are there not conditions that God set out to say, you must do these things in order for me to fulfill my promise? Paul tells us in verse 15 of our text, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The purpose of the law is not justification. Paul would write of this in Romans chapter 7, saying, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, why then the law? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law brings wrath. 
It's meant to show us where we're lacking. It's meant to show us how we have transgressed. It is not meant as a means for justification. Paul continues on in verses 16 and 17 of our text, saying, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. While we have the law that makes demands of us that we cannot possibly keep, it brings wrath on us. But grace makes promises that we believe in and brings blessings. At the, end of chapter, at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul made a clear distinction between the idea of work earning wages and trust bringing gifts. He does the same thing here. The law brings wrath while faith brings blessings. These ideas cannot be mixed up. This is so critical. We cannot mix up the ideas of law and faith. Concepts like law, obedience, transgression, and wrath, they, believe they belong to a completely separate category than concepts of grace and promise and faith. But why? Why can these promises given to Abraham not come through the keeping of the law? It's very simple. In order that the promise may rest on grace. In order that the promise is guaranteed. This is so important here. Abraham was justified by his faith. His faith that God was who he says he is. His faith that all of God's promises are yes and amen. His faith that God can give life to the dead. His faith that God calls things into existence from nothing. But Scripture doesn't say that Abraham's faith was itself righteousness. He did not say that Abraham himself was righteous because he had faith. Rather, it says that Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. If you look at the NASB, you'll see a different word put there. Other translations have this as his faith was credited to him as righteousness. But we can't miss the point here. We can't count faith as a work. Because while justification comes through faith, it is not man's faith that brings salvation. It is all God's grace. The promises given to Abraham, all of God's grace. Abraham's faith is all of God's grace. Justification, all of God's grace. The guarantee that these promises would flow through his offspring, all of God's grace. Ideas like works or religious ceremony or the keeping of the law could never guarantee those promises never guarantee those promises. It's only through God's grace that we can see that there is a guarantee. Next week, we'll talk in more detail about what Abraham's faith looked like. 
But imagine with me for a moment if God's promises to Abraham and to his descendants were based on works of the law. In Genesis chapter 12, we find Abraham sojourning for a time in Egypt. It reads, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to uh, Sarai, his wife, I know that you are uh, a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Egypt saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt dealt well with Abram. He had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai's wife. Now, while it was true that Sarah was Abram's, Abraham's half-sister, this was meant to deceive the Egyptians. If you move on to chapter 17, we see that Abraham didn't learn his lesson. He did the exact same thing again with Abimelech. What was the outcome? The Lord closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech until Abimelech made reparations. And in chapter 16 of Genesis, we see Sarah convince Abraham to take her servant Hagar as his wife and provide her a child, even though God had promised them a child. If Abraham's justification and his promises were dependent on Abraham's righteousness, if they were dependent on Abraham's keeping of the law, all would have been lost. If the promises to his descendants were based on works of the law, all would be lost. If the promises to his descendants were based purely on being from the line of Abraham, not based on faith, but just being born into the line of Abraham, then there would be no hope for the Gentiles. But justification being dependent on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, means that our salvation does not depend on us. And the key here is all the way back to Genesis. This is the way it's always been. God didn't come up with a new way of salvation when Jesus was born. This was how it always was since before the foundation of the world. This is the way it was at creation. This is the way it was when Adam and Eve sinned. When David, a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and murder, this was the way of justification. When the Israelites were held captive in Egypt, this was the way of justification. When they strayed from the Lord, this was the way of justification. In their exile, this was the way of justification. This was God's plan for salvation throughout history until Christ returns. This should be so comforting for us. It should be comforting for believers and unbelievers alike. We've all lied. We've all stolen something. We've all taken the Lord's name in vain. We've all looked at a man or woman with with lust. If our justification was based on our thoughts and deeds, we would all be forever under God's wrath. Paul already made it clear. None are righteous. No, not one. And quite possibly my favorite passage in all of Scripture, Paul emphasizes salvation 
by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Each and every one of us started out this way. Each and every one of us were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were consumed with the passions of our flesh. We were enemies of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with him. As believers, we need to be consistently and constantly reminded of this. We did not come to saving faith by anything that we did. We didn't seek God. We didn't impress him with our good works. We didn't say a certain prayer that saved us. It wasn't our baptism that saved us. It's not our taking of the Lord's Supper that saved us. Nothing that we did justifies us before a holy God. We were dead when God brought us back to life. We were dead when he took our heart of stone and turned it into flesh. We were deserving of the fullness of God's holy wrath. But by God's grace... And God's grace alone, we were given faith. And that faith is credited as righteousness. But that righteousness doesn't belong to us. That righteousness is not our own, but it's the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us. For believers, the fact that we're still saved has nothing to do with us. The fact that we continue on in salvation is nothing short of God's grace and God's grace alone. If you've been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, then Jesus himself says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We could and should spend the entirety of what's left of our life meditating on God's boundless grace and mercy and love towards us. If you're here today and you've not placed your faith in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation, this should also be comforting to you. Don't get me wrong, it is a scary scary thing to know that sin, that our sin is deserving of God's wrath, 
That should be a terrifying thing and is a terrifying thing. But what is comforting is to know that before the foundation of the world, God made a way for salvation. And here's the best part. It's not dependent on you. In God's boundless love and grace and mercy, he sent his only son to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, to be resurrected on the third day. And in doing so, Jesus took on the fullness of God's wrath on our behalf for those who believe. With God's wrath satisfied, Christ justifies us. He makes us right. He declares us to be righteous before the Lord so that God no longer looks at our sin but looks at the perfect righteousness of Christ. And again, the best part is it doesn't depend on us. If it depended on us, we would fail 100% of the time. If it depended on us, we would still be under the wrath of a holy God, deserving that wrath. But in all of God's wisdom, before the foundation of the world, he made this on faith. And then amazingly said, not only am I going to base it on faith, I'm going to give you the faith needed. Why? To guarantee God's promise. So as we leave here today, for believers, I would urge you to, to truly sit and think and be reminded of just how limitless God's grace is. How much he loves us. For unbelievers, I would beg you to call out to God to repent of your sins and to believe. Knowing that even that isn't on you. God gives you the faith to do it. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your grace, it, it, it's too much for our human minds to fully understand. We know that your promises are yes and amen, but even just the idea of a promise of salvation, a promise to be justified before you is not dependent on us. That justification comes purely through your grace. It's something that should bring us all to joyful tears, Lord. I pray that you continue to remind us of this grace. Never let us boast as if we've somehow done something deserving of your love. Lord, convict us of our sin. Use your law to do what its purpose is, to bring conviction, to show us where we're falling short, Lord. Lord, sanctify your people. 
conform us to the image of your son. Let us, let us stand ready for his return. I ask that you continue to bless this time of worship. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.